Good evening, everyone. My name is Noelin, and I'll be reading today's scripture passage. Tonight, we'll be reading from 2 Samuel chapter 23, verses 8 through 17. If you need a copy of the Bible, we have copies in the back, but if you do take one, we ask that you don't return it. Again, we'll be reading from 2 Samuel chapter 23, verses 8 through 17. These are the names of the mighty, of the mighty men whom David had. Joseph Bashibeth a Tecmonite, he was chief of the three. He wielded his spear against 800 whom he killed at one time. And next to him among the three mighty men was Eliezer, the son of Dodo, son of Ahohai. He was with David when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there for battle, and the men of Israel withdrew. He rose and struck down the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand clung to the sword. And the Lord brought about a great victory that day, and the men returned after him only to strip the slain. And next to him was Shammah, the son of Agi, the, the Hararite. The Philistines gathered together at Lehi, where there was a plot of ground full of lentils, and the men fled from the Philistines. But he took his stand in the midst of the plot and defended it and struck down the Philistines, and the Lord worked a great victory. And three of the 30 chief men went down and came about harvest time to David at the cave of Adalam, when a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. David was then in the stronghold and the garrison of the Philistines was then at Bethlehem. And David said longingly, oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. Then the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and carried and brought it to David. But he would not drink of it. He poured it to the Lord and said, Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went at the risk of their lives? Therefore he would not drink it. These things the three mighty men did. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Noah. That was a tough passage to read. Well, it's good to be back with you guys. Love being here with you on Sundays. Uh, for those of you who are new, joining us for the first time, a welcome to you. My name is Steve. I'm the lead pastor here. I also see some faces that I haven't seen in a little while, so it's also good to see you guys. So this, we have two more weeks in 2 Samuel today and then next week. After that, we'll have a couple sermons from pastors who support our church. And then in September, we're, getting, we're going to jump into uh, 1 Peter, and that's going to carry us through the fall and up to Advent season, so looking forward to that with you guys. So, as you heard in the scripture reading, this isn't one of those passages that you often find, you know, like written in nice calligraphy on people's, like, walls in their home. You know, Eleazar, son of Dodo, you know, strikes the Philistines with such vigor that his hand freezes to his sword. You just, you don't see that. Um, but what this passage tells us about is, it means, what does it look like to have a warrior spirit as a Christian? Uh, what does it look like to have a warrior spirit as a Christian? And this is something, especially in the West, we need to look at because I think often we have a one-dimensional view of Christianity, at least the broader church does. So, for example, if you go on an Instagram pro profile that's very Christian-y, like what's the most common picture you see of somebody following Jesus? Usually it's a variation of the same thing, which is, here's my cup of coffee, you know, my pen laid out nicely on my notebook, I've got my Bible, I've got that you know, piece of art or plant on the edge of the frame that I'm trying to make it look like I didn't mean it for it to be there, but I totally meant it for it to be there. You know, but like when you see pictures like that, that, that's what we think of, or that's what people often think of when it means I'm following Jesus. Now, I 
hope your life with Christ means personal time with the Lord. You need that. Uh, but what those pictures don't often depict is the incredible calls to self-denial that Jesus calls you to, the mess that Jesus often calls you into. And it's, it's not so different than if you look at a, like if you're looking at pictures of a family, you know, so I was looking at pictures of families before I had a child, just everything looks so serene all the time. You know, it's like the family's together in a field somewhere, reading together in the living room, and uh, it's like, oh my gosh, I can't wait to have a child. And I I'm so glad I have a child, but what those pictures don't show is what, right? Like those many nights at 2.30 in the morning where your child is uncontrollably or unconsolably crying for two hours, or as they get older, you know, the petty standoffs in your household or the many moments of or self-doubt that you have as a parent. And so um, similar to how we often think about the Christian life as, you know, serenity, and that's a part of it, we need to look at what does it mean to be disciplined? Uh, for the Lord, we need to look at uh, primarily what does it look like to fight for Jesus and with Jesus. So that's what we're going to look at tonight in this passage of David's mighty men. So first we'll look at number one, God affirms the warrior spirit. Number two, we'll look at how does God in the gospel transform the warrior spirit. And number three, what are some practical ways that we can apply the warrior spirit? Okay, so number one, God does affirm the warrior spirit and his people. Number two, how does God transform the warrior spirit, and the gospel. And then number three, what are some practical applications of how we apply the warrior spirit as we follow Jesus? Okay, so first number one, God affirms the warrior spirit. So we don't know when this passage takes place. This was probably earlier on during David's kingly reign, actually, but it's here at the end of 2 Samuel as a way to give tribute to the men that stood alongside David. And so What's going on here in verse, verse 13 through 17 are going to be the main verses that we're camping out in today. So David, he was God's anointed king. God had promised David a line that would extend forever. But here David's in a dark time. So David's in a cave. And living in a cave was just as fun as it is to live in a cave today. And what's happened is the Philistines, enemies of the Israelites, have invaded deep into Israelite territory. So you see there in verse 13b, it says, David was at the cave of Adullam when a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. So Rephaim was just a few miles south of Jerusalem. And then it says there was a garrison of the Philistines at Bethlehem. So Bethlehem was David's hometown. So David's kicked out of, of where he's from. And what happens in verse 15 is, is it says, David says longingly, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. Now, here what's going on is not physical thirst. David wouldn't have set up a stronghold in a place where he didn't have water. So this isn't physical thirst that's going on. This is spiritual thirst. David's doing what you and I do a lot when we're in a period of anxiety or we're uncertain about the future. What do a lot of us do? We start reminiscing about simpler and better times, right? We go into nostalgia. Like, oh, I miss it when life was this simple. And when he says, you know, I, I miss the water at Bethlehem, it's... It's not too different from if you're just thinking back to like an amazing restaurant you had in your college town. And I just, I miss going to that restaurant with my friends. We had all these meaningful conversations and my only job was just not to fail my classes. That's what David's looking back on. But his nostalgia is a lot less sinful than ours because he's also thinking about, he's also thinking about God's promise to him. You know, so God had promised to make him king and to bless him, but that doesn't look like how things are going. So he's longing to be back in Bethlehem. And then what happens? And this is where you have to use your imagination because this is outrageous. So 
Verse 16, the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and carried and brought it to David. So these three mighty men, Josheb, Eleazar, and Shammah, they're the original Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli, if you will. Okay, so these are incredible fighters. And David doesn't even, he doesn't command them to go get water. He's just like reminiscing, you know, for just to nobody in particular as far as he's concerned, but the men, they hear his longing. So then they run into Bethlehem. And so these three guys, like they break through the enemy camp. They break through the garrison that's at Bethlehem. They just have to picture this because they run to the well. So you can picture, you know, one guy has the water skin. And so like two of the warriors are fighting off everybody. And then you have the one guy like trying really hard to get the water in the water skin. And the, the two other warriors who are fighting are like, will you hurry up and get the water in there? He's like, hey, it's harder, it's harder than it looks. Give me a break. So then he fills up the water skin. And then they fight back through Philistine lines again. And the Philistines are probably wondering, you know, what did they break through for? Did they assassinate one of our commanders? Did they take a hostage? No, they're just carrying a full water skin back to the camp, right? So they carry it and they bring it back to David. Now, what's going on here? So these three men, they love their king. And by these three men getting a victory like this, what it would have done was, one, it would have heartened David. It would have imbued the Israelite army with courage. And we know it did this because we know that David eventually did push back the Philistines and become victorious. And so what's going on here is there's a celebration or a, condom, or a commendation of the warrior culture, of having a warrior spirit. And how do we know scripture affirms this? Because anytime you read something, you need to ask, okay, is this just describing something that's taking place, right? Like we've seen how a lot of people had polygamous marriages in the Old Testament that was descriptive, just telling you what people did. The reason why we know this is a little bit more prescriptive in terms of uh, honoring the warrior spirit is because one, what it did for the people, but number two, God himself is described as a warrior. Uh, so Exodus chapter 15, for example, after he leads the Israelites out of, out of Egypt and they pass through the Red Sea, chapter 15, verse 3, as Israel is singing a song, they say, God is a warrior you know, who threw the horse and the rider into the sea. Many other places in the Old Testament, God's described as a warrior. In Revelation, Jesus is described as a warrior who returns at the end of all things to destroy evil. But not just God, Christ's people are referred to as warriors. So Ephesians chapter 6 says, be strong in the Lord and then put on the armor of God. Okay, this is warrior-like language. Or 2 Timothy chapter 2, you know, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. So there's lots of lifting up of being a warrior for Jesus Christ. And so the Bible affirms having a warrior spirit. We need to think about what does it look like to have a warrior spirit. But next we need to look at, okay, how does God in the gospel transform the warrior spirit? Because, am I right, one of the problems that a lot of people in our culture have, especially in our current cultural moment, is there's a lot of skepticism toward people who wield authority, toward people who are seen as zealots, toward people who use power, especially if they are in a position of high authority, or especially if they do so in the name of religion. And in the church, you know, a lot of us say, well, I don't, okay, that's fine, but my Myers-Briggs isn't really a warrior type. I'm just kind of the more gentle reserve person. So, Okay, so you're calling me to be a warrior. What, what's it talking about? So next, next, let's look at number two. How does God in the gospel transform the warrior spirit? Because then this will give us clarity into like, what does it look like to live this out practically? And that we see primarily in verses 16b and verse 17. 
So what happens after the mighty men get the water for David, and then they run back and they give it to David? What does it say at the end of verse 16? He would not drink of it. He poured it out to the Lord. Okay, so you imagine David's, you know, back at his, his camp in the cave, and the mighty men return. You know, they have blood on their sores, and they're gasping for air. It was a 25-mile round trip to go to Bethlehem and back. They're exhausted. The whole Israelite camp is riled up. So I imagine when they showed up with the water skin, you know, I picture, if you guys remember those old uh, Pepsi commercials, you have the really, like, hot and tired model that's like, Psh, ah, you know, like they, they drink the Pepsi when they're really exhausted. I imagine David doing that, but that, and that's what everybody's expecting him to do, but that's not what he does. He just, he pours it out. Now, if I were one of the mighty men, I would have, I would have been furious. You're like, David, do you have any idea what I just went through to get you that water? Now you're just pouring it on the ground. The mighty men wouldn't have been furious. Okay, why do we know they wouldn't have been offended or irritated? And the key is, it's not just that David poured it out, but he poured it out to the Lord. So this is Old Testament language for offering. It's Old Testament language for worship. And so what David's doing, and then you see in, in verse 17, Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. I, shall I drink the blood of the men who went at the risk of their lives? So what David's saying is, this water is as precious to me as the blood of the men who went to do this for me. And so I'm not worthy of this water. And so he's pouring it out, not because it's trash, but because it's treasure. And because he sees it as treasure, he's saying the only one with enough honor who deserves this water is the Lord. So I'm going to give it to him as an offering. So it, it's why when you, when you give of your time or of your money to the Lord, part of the joy and the liberation of writing a check or giving online or giving to another ministry, what you're doing when you give is you're saying, it's only because of God's goodness and grace that I have any of the money that I have. It's a treasure because God's given it to me, and so I'm going to give it to the Lord and other people instead of hoarding it all for myself. And that's what David's doing here. And this would have changed the warrior culture, especially shame and honor society, which is a lot about self-exaltation you know, through valor. But by David pouring out this water, he's, one, not giving glory to the men who got it for him. He's not lifting up himself for whom the men did this. But what he's doing is he's lifting up the Lord. And so David begins to transform the warrior culture, and then where this transformation of the warrior culture reaches its climax is in the New Testament, where the son of David, Jesus Christ, comes on the scene. And Colossians chapter 2 describes what Jesus did in battlefield language. So Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, it says, Jesus triumphed over, um, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. So how does Jesus triumph over the rulers and authorities over this present darkness? Colossians chapter 2, verse 14 says, By canceling the record of debt for sin that we carry, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So when Jesus comes in, so the amazing thing about Jesus is, like, we know the more power that you have, right, the easier it is for power to corrupt you the easier it is for you to fall into self-deception and to use power for selfish means. But Jesus has far more power than anybody. You know, he's the creator. He's the one who dwells in unapproachable splendor. But yet what Jesus does is he lays aside all of his power and then 
at the crucifixion, what he does is he takes the judgment for your sin and my sin so that we can be forgiven, so that we can be adopted as sons and daughters, and then in his power, he raises from the dead to give us new life. Jesus always uses his power to heal, to protect, to give, rather than to hoard and to harm. And so as believers, to go about your life using the influence you have, using the resources you have, for yourself rather than other people, and for Jesus is a contradiction in terms because of the one who saved us, Jesus Christ, and how he used power, how he demonstrated the warrior spirit for his people. Okay, so when at the heart of your worldview is God giving himself for you, laying aside his power, there's no way, if you're consistent, you can then use power just for yourself, right, instead of giving it away for other people. So that's the transformation of the warrior spirit that we see in this passage and then what culminates in the New Testament. And so let's finish up by asking, okay, how do we we practically apply this? Because we've been talking a little bit in the abstract up until now. So how how do we practically apply this? Um, First, it it does recalibrate how you use power. Some of you may be thinking, I don't have a lot of power. In fact, I often feel inadequate and helpless in a lot of the things that I do. But every human being has power. It's part of being human. Like Psalm chapter 8, for example, talks about we're made just a little bit lower than the angels, and God has given us dominion over the earth. Dominion means not to uh, squash, but it means to use your influence for the flourishing of other creatures and other people. And so to be human, you do have power. So think of power in terms of the ability to shape the world around you. That's what power is, the, the ability to shape the world around you. And so let's talk about two ways that maybe we don't often think about how do we as believers, because of how Jesus saved us, how do we use power in our lives? And one is emotional power. So you can't necessarily help it when you get sad. Sometimes you're sad just because you're sad. Sometimes you're happy just because you're happy. But what you can control is how you treat other people when you're in a particular mood. And I think a lot of us use a mood as an excuse to wield power over people, right? So we all know people where it's like you have to tiptoe on eggshells around them because you're so scared about like riling them up or them being put in a mood and lashing out at you. But think about in your closest relationships because this is where it often comes out, right? With your family members, maybe it's your spouse, maybe it's with your family, maybe it's your coworkers. How do you use your emotions to either keep people captive to them? It's like, I'm in a mood, so I just don't have to deal with you right now. Or even in the midst of your emotions, still loving them and serving them as Jesus first loved you. So that's one way to think about power. Another way to think about power is vocational power. So each and every one of you, and I know most of the people in this room, are extremely gifted. And in this passage, one of the things that's highlighted in chapter 8 through 12 when it talks about the acts of the mighty men, it's actually more about the Lord working through them. So you see in verse 10, it was the Lord who brought about a great victory through Eleazar. And then in verse 12, the Lord worked a great victory as Shema was fighting. And, so, and then David acknowledges it later when he pours out the water. In other words, any gift that you have, any drop of ability that you have, is derivative. And God trusts you with it 
to use it to exalt him and to use for other people. And so think about the gifts, even if you don't consider yourself a very gifted person, just think about some of your leanings and where has God gifted you. Are you gifted with words and language? A lot of you are. The eternal word has given you that ability. Okay, some of you are in incredible positions in your work. The king of kings who reigns on the throne has given you that position. Are you the creative type? The creator has given you that ability. Are you a parent? The giver of life has entrusted that position to you. Any single gift that you have is from God to use for him and for other people. So in your work, in your relationships, how do you use that ability? And so like, what would be a tragedy is to win in the enterprise that you're pursuing, but to do so with Jesus on the periphery, as opposed to doing everything in your ability for Jesus and for other people, and then failing at your enterprise. Okay, so that's one way to use the warrior spirit in the Christian way is how to use power. Um, number two is it completely changes your approach to obedience. Okay, having the warrior spirit as a Christian, it changes your approach to obedience. So I had the privilege this past week of meeting with a friend who I've known for 10 years. I originally met him at my old job. And he used to have no interest in the gospel. And he reached out. And he uh, just kind of out of nowhere and said, hey, Steve, I'm interested in this whole Jesus thing. Uh, can we get together? And I want to hear more about Jesus. And so uh, we got together. And I was, you know, we got talking, and one of the things I was highlighting as part of the uniqueness and wonder of Christ is how he saves us by grace, right? Salvation is of the Lord. He doesn't wait for us to get our act together. And he, like any thoughtful person should ask, he asked, okay, so if, we're, if Jesus saves you by grace and you have a get-out-of-jail-free card, like, what's the motivation to live a good life? Like, what's the motivation to obey? It was a very thoughtful question. And... This text answers that question. Um, Paul gets at it as well in Romans 6, right? Shall we just sin all the more so that grace may abound? By no means. But here in the Old Testament version, what we see is, notice what happens when the mighty men go out to get the water for David. We mentioned earlier, David didn't command them. What they did is they heard the sigh of their king, oh, that somebody would give me the water at Bethlehem's gate. And they ran out because their king's wish was their command. There was no difference between the two. And so what you see here is they're modeling Christian obedience in the gospel. Because if you're just an ethical religious person, the reason why you obey is out of fear. I don't want God to be mad at me. I want to make sure I go to heaven when I die. Or you do because you want to get things from God. But one of the ways you know that you've been captured by the beauty of Jesus is rather than looking for commands from Christ, although he gives plenty, it's more about listening to the size of Christ. Right? It's more about looking and listening at what makes Jesus happy and then walking in line with Christ that way. Okay, so the, the religious person will ask questions like, how much do I need to tithe and does it have to be you know, pre-tax or can it be post-tax? The Christian who's been captured by the beauty of Jesus says, I am so glad I get to give my money. Right? Because it's all from Jesus, and I want it to go toward things that can further his kingdom. Okay, the ethical religious type asks, okay, like, how many times do I have to share the gospel in a year, and how many conversions do I have to see in my life to know that I'm okay? 
right? The one who's been captured by grace, who's been captured by Jesus, just, I just am so in wonder at who Jesus is and the fact that he loved me a sinner that I can't stop talking about him. And yeah, maybe no one, maybe 20 people I know will end up coming to the faith as I talk about Jesus. I do care about that, but more I just want to talk about Jesus and then trust them to Christ. Right, on and on it goes. As you think about your life, is it, even just this past week, I was talking to an individual and they were like, well, you know, where, where does the Bible explicitly say that? And sometimes we do that, right, as a way to just get out from under things that we know God loves, things we know Jesus loves. So it clarifies things just to think more along the lines of, what is the heart of Christ? Because that, that's very clear in Scripture. And how do I join him in that? Okay, so as a warrior for Christ, it changes how you use power. It changes your approach to obedience. As you just look at what what makes Jesus happy. And then finally, it changes where you draw your strength from. Okay, because the paradoxical nature of the Christian life is, yes, Christ calls you to be disciplined. He calls you to be strong. He calls you to work hard. But the Christian life is far more about Christ's commitment to you and his heart being set on you more than it is how much is your heart being set on Jesus and so look look again at David he was in a cave his life wasn't going as he hoped it would right things were dark but yet mighty men went out and got him living water to satisfy his thirst and just like David you are going to find yourself in a cave of sorts okay some of you are in one now Others of you will be in a cave later where you're going to ask questions like, where is God in this? How do I know God's with me? How do I know God loves me? God promised this. I'm not experiencing it. And so like what happened to David, who you need to see is Jesus Christ, who when Jesus heard your sigh, when he heard your longing for home, when he heard your longing for things to be made right within and without. He didn't hesitate. He heard your sigh and ran after you. And on the cross when he said, I thirst, he was doing that so that he could give you living water which wells up into eternal life and gives you joy. And so while Jesus never promises that you will not enter into a cave and he never promises that you won't be in a cave for a very long time in your life. What Jesus does promise, and Jesus doesn't lie, is that it's his life ambition to stay by your side, to persevere you all the way to the end, holding you in his wounded hands as he does so. That's the incredible promise you get from Jesus Christ. Okay, so your strength doesn't come from within. It comes from him, and that's what makes all the difference as you live out the warrior ethic in this life. Let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for including uh, epic stories like this uh, so that we can uh, not just be encouraged by other people's courage uh, who live for their king, but also so that we can see uh, the love and commitment that you have toward us. Lord, I pray that we will be people who... uh, cherish our personal time and find incredible peace in going to you every single day and casting our anxieties upon you. And at the same time, Lord, are um, people who aren't wimps, um, who actually look at your call to pick up our cross and follow you, to listen 
for the size of Jesus and listen to what makes him happy and then live for you all the while knowing it's you who strengthens and empowers us. Thank you for these things and I pray that you will um, teach us a lot as we finish in 2 Samuel next week and it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.